We are in the midst of a series where we are walking through some of the highlight passages of the book of Exodus. We've entitled this series, A Soft Heart for a Hard World. We're talking about what can we do to mirror the heart of God in the midst of dark and difficult times. And as we jumped into the series last week, one of the things that we discovered is that the Bible in the New Testament actually describes for us what hard-heartedness looks like. That in Ephesians chapter 4, that Paul kind of gives us a list of attributes of what hard-heartedness actually entails in the life of an individual. We're not going to walk through the list, but we talked about how soft-heartedness is the contrast to those hard-hearted attributes and that we want to become more like the image of the one who created us to reflect those qualities in the world. The book of Exodus shows us hard-heartedness personified in the person of Pharaoh. And so all the way back during the time of Egypt, this king is the one who really demonstrates a life that is far from God. And in contrast to that, what we got to see is that the book of Exodus actually begins not with Moses, but with Pharaoh and these two barren, uneducated, impoverished women named Shifra and Pua who are lifted up as heroines in the story, and that they're the ones who actually reflect the character of God in the midst of the horrible genocide. In other words, part of the reason that we're talking about this is is that this is not like hard-heartedness versus soft-heartedness, that we're looking to make your life a little better. We're looking for you to become a little nicer. That's not what's at stake here. What's at stake here is the very character of the world in which we live in that if we live hard-hearted lives, that the result of that is what we see in the book of Exodus, which is slavery, oppression, abuse, murder, and even genocide. And so we desperately need to discover the soft heart of God in order to change the quality of our world. So in the midst of all of this slavery and oppression, God sends a rescuer. And the rescuer comes, just as we kind of experienced in baptism this morning, uh, the rescuer comes in the form of a child, a child who is placed in a basket in order that it will not be killed, a child that is pushed away in order for it to find its new home, and it actually finds its way to the shores of none other than the house of Pharaoh himself. And that actually this young Hebrew boy grows up to become uh, a son of Pharaoh, a prince of Egypt. Now, what's interesting in this little story about the basket is that the very same Hebrew word that the Bible uses for the basket that Moses is placed in is the very same Hebrew word for ark, as in Noah's ark. So just as God rescued humanity by placing them on the ark, God is also now continuing the rescue journey by placing Moses and rescuing him. And what's interesting is that the word Moses in Hebrew means to draw out or to pull out. So in other words, God is drawing out of the river Nile a rescuer, a deliverer. God is pulling out of the darkness of that time someone who is going to share the light of God. And so Moses grows up with the finest of education and every possible thing at his fingertips. And as he grows up, 
He notices on one particular day that there's a taskmaster who is abusing a Hebrew slave. And in a crime of passion, Moses decides to do something about that, and he ends up murdering the taskmaster and buries the body in the sand. Well, Moses is found out, and we discover in this part of the story that violent uprising is not going to be the way that God rescues his people. And because that Moses is exposed, he has to flee that a price gets put on his head. And he doesn't go from like Fulton County over to Cobb County. No, he has to go a long way away to get away from Pharaoh. He goes to this place. He goes to Midian. He goes all the way across the Sinai Peninsula, all the way across the wilderness and the wasteland that that is to get as far away from Pharaoh as possible. And it's in that place that Moses reboots his life. He falls in love. He starts a family. He has an overactive father-in-law named Jethro. And Moses' journey is like this. Let's summarize it this way, that he goes from being an orphan to becoming a prince, that he goes from being a prince to being a criminal, that he goes from a criminal to being a refugee, and he goes a refugee to a ranch hand. How's that for vocational gymnastics? This is proof positive that Moses is the first ever millennial in history. He changes his career every two or three years. And so Moses is winding down his life. He thinks he's getting towards the end. And God seriously interrupts Moses' retirement plans. Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flames of fire from within a bush. And Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. And so Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place you are standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying because of their slave drivers. I am concerned about their suffering. And so I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. And I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. And Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? And what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you were to say to the Israelites. 
I am sent me to you. May God bless not only the hearing, but the receiving and the putting into practice of his holy word. Moses isn't looking for God, is he, in this story? No, God is looking for Moses. And Moses probably passed by that bush a hundred times, but this time it's different. The bush is on fire. The bush is ablaze, but it's not an ordinary fire. It's a fire that doesn't consume. It's an eternal flame that doesn't destroy. And so Moses decides that he wants to go take a closer look. What we discover from the text and the little details is that the, the language of turning aside and going over is not just like going from here to here. No, Moses has to go over. It's the connotation of going over to like the other side of a ravine. It's like he sees it from a distance and then he has to make an extraordinary effort or a detour in order to draw close. And as he draws close, he draws close to the very heart of God. And as he draws near, what we begin to discover is that Moses is in a holy place. Now, this is really odd given the fact that of where Moses actually is. There's a little irony here. We know this place later to be Mount Sinai because of, you know, the famous encounter that happens here and also God thundering from the mountaintop with the Israelites later and the Ten Commandments. Uh, the name of the mountain gets changed just like the name of people often in the Bible goes from Abram to Abraham or other name changes that take place in the Bible like Simon to Peter. The mountain's name has changed. The mountain at this point in time, even though it's the same mountain, is known as Mount Horeb at that time. And Horeb in Hebrew means wasteland. So in other words, Moses is absolutely nowhere. Moses is in the middle of the wilderness. Moses is in a wasteland kind of place, but even with God, wastelands can become holy lands. And so in verse 7, what we hear is that God has indeed not been indifferent to the sufferings of his people. We hear that he has seen the misery, that he has heard them crying, that yes, God is indeed concerned, and that yes, he is coming to rescue. And the way that he's going to rescue in verse 10 is he says, so now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh. Let's not miss the craziness of what God is saying to Moses here. Here is Moses, has been from a long, long time ago, who hasn't really given Egypt a second thought in the last couple of decades. God is telling this now shepherd to go back across the desert without an army to go and to confront the most powerful figure in the world to tell him that his days of free labor are now over. Who wants this assignment? Nobody does. And so what happens at this point is you begin two chapters of incredibly rich dialogue that we're not going to be able to cover today, but I just want to cover the first kind of opening bits of it, of this back and forth. I hope you'll go read it for yourself, this back and forth between God and Moses. And the first question that Moses has to ask is this. He's like, hey, God, who am I to do this? Who am I? I love how John Orberg puts it. He puts it this way. 
He says, God's sense of timing seems strange to Moses. 40 years ago, maybe. 40 years ago, he was young and strong and the product of the greatest education and the advanced civilization of Egypt could produce. 40 years ago, he had powerful connections and high hopes, but now he was a nobody, an anonymous shepherd in a forgotten desert, rejected by his own people and a fugitive from the Egyptians. I love the Bible's authenticity in moments like this, that we discover, I mean, if you were making these myths up, you would never make heroes like this, completely flawed. I mean, Moses doesn't even, he's not even good at public speaking. And yet he's filled with all these excuses and God says, I'm going to send you. And he's like, wait, who am I to do this? And I love God's response. Did you notice that God doesn't pamper Moses? He's like, there, there, Moses, this is going to be okay. You're special. I designed you in a unique way. That's not what Moses gets in this moment. Basically, God says, you're a nobody, but I'll be with you. How's that for pastoral care, huh? You're a nobody, Moses, but I will be with you. And because of that, it makes you in to a somebody. This is where Henry Blackaby and um, that they discovered that great phrase. It was in light of this passage to say, God doesn't call the equipped. God equips the called. As a pastor, I never worry about those people when they get called to be an elder or to do something and, and they're like, oh, no, no, you've got the wrong woman or you've got the wrong man for the job. I only worry about the elders when we go through the process that are like, well, it's about time. Because those are the people I worry about. The people who feel like that they're entitled to the call. You look at all the different call narratives in the Bible, and I mean, it's excuses and reasons why and inadequacies. I always worry if we feel like we're up to the task. Sometimes people will come to my office and it's only behind closed doors that they'll have the trust and the vulnerability to say things like, you know, I don't feel God's presence in my life. I go to church, I pray, I sing, I do all these things, but I don't feel him. A lot of times they'll say, I don't feel him anymore. And you know what I will often tell them? I'll say, that's okay. Because the promise of the Bible is not that you will always feel his presence. The promise of the Bible is that he'll always be with you. Whether you feel him or not, whether you realize it or not, whether you're experiencing him or not. You're a nobody, but he's with you. And because of that, you become the one that he is going to call. God is not with us purely for our own sake, not even our own salvation. God is with us for the sake of the mission the sake of the call. He has given you a job to do. He has given us a job as a church to do in the restoration business. And just as God has called you and called us, he called Moses and he sent him on a wild journey. And so Moses's next question is a logical one. So if the first question is, who am I to do this? The next question that Moses is asked is like, okay, wait, God, suppose for a moment that I agree to do this. Can you tell me that when I get there, who am I to say is the one who sent me? So if the first question is, who am I? The second question is, who the heck are you? And he's asking for God's name. 
And what's interesting is that God doesn't give him a noun, a proper noun. He gives him a verb. He says, I am who I am. And this is not nearly as cryptic as we make it out to be. Eugene Peterson puts it this way. He says, we cannot make an object of God. God is not a thing to be named. We cannot turn God into an idea. God is not a concept to be discussed. We cannot use God for making or doing. God is not a power to be harnessed. We have a long history in wanting to make God into our own image and use him for our own purposes. In other words, God is not whatever you want him to be. God is whoever he is in existence. We have this incredible tendency to want to worship the God that we want instead of the God who is. We want to fashion God. We want to create God. We want to make God into our own image and our own likeness and our own desires. But this God doesn't really exist. It's an idol. When we give God all the attributes of what we want or think that we want, that's, that's not the real living God. That's why the, the wonderful primary image of this passage is of a burning bush, that it's fire, that fire is not to be played with, that fire is not tame, that fire is wild, fire is something that you can't control. This is the all-consuming, burning presence of Almighty God. And yet it is a fire that is not here to destroy. It is a fire that is meant to give light. The light shines in the darkness, we find at the beginning of the Gospel John and the darkness cannot extinguish it. And so the first question is, who are you? You're a nobody, but I'll be with you. The second question, is, I'm sorry, excuse me, who am I? Second question is, who are you? And God says, I am who I am. God gets to determine who he is, not the other way around. Now, 20 plus years ago, when I was in seminary, I remember studying this story with Old Testament professor Dennis Olson. He was doing a Bible study on this passage. We got into Exodus chapter 3, and I remember him saying that in order to understand Exodus chapter 3, you have to go back to Exodus chapter 2, that the clue to chapter 3 is in chapter 2. And towards the end of very end of chapter 2, Moses has a child. And names are really important in the Old Testament, just as we lifted up the names of all of the baptisms for today. Names are really significant in the Bible. And the name that Moses chose for his son is Gershom, which means a stranger here or an alien in a foreign land. In other words, Moses, even though he's been in Midian for several decades, even though he's got a wife and a family, even though he's got a job, he doesn't feel like he's at home. He didn't feel at home in Egypt. He doesn't feel that he's at home in Midian. And so as Moses draws close to the burning bush, God tells him to stop. And God asks Moses to remove his what? His sandals, his shoes. This is so obvious to somebody who would have lived in Moses' day and age, but it's so foreign to us that we think when we read the text that, oh yeah, Moses has to remove his sandals because the text talks about it being holy ground. Do you know what would have been obvious to Moses? 
What was obvious is that basically the only time you removed your sandals was when you were entering into somebody's home. Moses wasn't at home in Egypt. He's not at home in Midian. What Moses is about to discover, that your only home is found in the presence of Almighty God. Several decades ago, when Kelly and I were dating, Kelly's grandmother on her father's side of the family, Marsha Beckham, she was a remarkable woman who was suffering from the late stages of Alzheimer's. And at first, even before it was diagnosed, it was just the losing of the keys, remembering or forgetting to do something. And even in the early stages, there were these little things, even these little glimpses of humor in the midst of the challenging of the disease. Kelly's grandmother had a cat by the name of Patches. And uh, what would happen over time is that Patches would come in and would meow, and Kelly's grandmother would say, oh, you must be hungry. But she had forgotten that she had just fed Patches a little while ago. Patches was the fattest cat you had ever seen in your life. In fact, Kelly tells her this one time when she was saying there that she hadn't seen Patches in a little while, and Patches came sauntering in to the living room on the hardwood floors with like the cat belly dragging along the floor. And, and the fact, because the floors had been recently waxed, that the, the cat just started going spread eagle on the ground. It looked like something out of Garfield, she said, one of those old cartoons. But most of the time, the forgetfulness was pretty painful, particularly on the family as they watched her not forget little things, but important things. One night, Kelly was spending the night at her grandmother's home. It was after midnight, and Kelly woke up because she heard someone making noise in the kitchen. Kelly got out of bed and walked into the kitchen. The lights were still all off. And yet Kelly's grandmother was opening cabinet after cabinet after cabinet, diligently searching for something. Kelly said, Grandma, what are you looking for? And you could tell that she was agitated, that she was worried. And Marcia said, I'm looking for Turner. Has anyone seen Turner anywhere? Turner was her husband who had died 15 years before. Kelly took a deep breath, grabbed her mom, grandmom by the elbow, walked her back to her bedroom, sat her down on the edge of the bed. Grandmom, Turner's not here. Turner's in heaven with Jesus. And her grandmother leaned forward with her shoulders and a little spark of recognition in her fiery blue eyes. She said, I want to go to heaven too. I'm ready to go home. She said, do you think you could pray with me to help me go home? And they prayed. 
Marsha Beckham forgot a lot of things in her later years. You know the one thing she never forgot? She never forgot that her home, her place, was not in Jacksonville, Florida, was not in the United States of America, it was not on this green planet that we call Earth, that her home is in God. And so remove your sandals because God's presence can turn wastelands into holy lands. Remove your sandals. No matter how close to retirement or through retirement you think you are, he's got a job for you to do. Remove your sandals. He's still rescuing, still saving, still calling his people out. Remove your sandals because in his presence, you, you can be at home. God doesn't forget that. And we're called to remember it. And so no matter how dark it is, no matter how long the delay, he hears your cries and he will send for you a rescuer. And his name is Jesus. Let's pray. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, God of Moses, God of David. In this moment, we stand in the great tradition of your firm and certain promises of your great love for us. Lord, I pray for the person who doesn't feel you right now, who doesn't know that you're there, I pray that you will be the wild, untamed fire of your presence in their life right now. I lift up to you, God, the person who's crying out to you quietly in desperation, in the midst of whatever oppression, slavery, forced labor, abuse that they're facing. Rescue them, God. Lord, I know what it's like to not feel at home. Help us to know that our true home is not found in an address, but it's found in your presence. And that you have made us to be only at peace, only at rest in you, in your call, in your great love. Help us to be welcomed into your presence. And we pray these things in the strong name of Jesus and all of God's people said, amen.